And so God has done amazing things, and we're excited about all that's to come. Now, if you're new with us, um, we are actually finishing up a seven-week study uh, today. And so I, I want to kind of give you some background as to where we've been so you can kind of understand uh, what we're going to talk about today, even though with it being Easter, I imagine most of us can guess what it is that we're going to talk about. Uh, so the last six weeks, we've been talking about the final words of Christ that he spoke from the cross. Now, no matter who it is speaking, uh, a man's final words, especially when he gets to choose his final words, are incredibly important and significant and teach us a lot about the character of the man who sang them. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be in those final moments, to hear the final words of, of someone as they were preparing um, and, and for death, as they were in those final moments, final breaths, or maybe just the final days. As a pastor, uh, that's just kind of one of the hats that I wear, one of the roles that I play, is spending time with people in those final moments and um, have been in those situations a number of times, uh, just there, um, sitting, holding hands, praying over people in those li- last few moments. And, and what they choose to say at the very end is so significant and reveals so much about what they love, about who they love, what they care about, and about the character of their life. But not only as a pastor, just really even as a grandson. Um, both, of my, both of my grandfathers have, have passed, uh, but... but I particularly remember when my dad's father um, was was in his final days. He was dealing with a long, long battle with cancer and and was coming to the end of it when I was a freshman in high school. And so I remember um, my whole family, we camped out and stayed at my grandparents' house for the entire week, that last week of my grandfather's life. And and I'll never forget those moments of my grandfather speaking words of life and encouragement into me. Uh, I'll also never forget watching as he spoke words of life and encouragement into my father um, in those last few moments. They're so, so precious, no matter who the man is. But especially with Jesus, uh, how significant are his final words that he chose so carefully And in those final moments, in those final hours of his life, as he's hanging from the cross, in all the pain that it cost him to just to utter a single word, for him to make seven statements from the the cross in those final moments, how significant are they? And so we've been spending six weeks looking at those final statements. And then this week, we're going to look at the last one, the seventh thing that Jesus says before he dies. Over the last six weeks, we've gotten to see a picture of, of the character and the man and the ministry and the life that Jesus had and that he lived and why he came to this earth. We got to see a picture of his, his heart for forgiveness, that even when he was hanging from the cross, he was praying for the forgiveness of those who are responsible for putting him there. We got to see uh, his heart for others and bringing them into uh, his kingdom and what he's doing both on this earth and in heaven, as he's having an evangelistic conversation with thieves who are also hanging on their own crosses at the same time. We get a a, a picture of his compassion. As hanging from the cross, Jesus is looking out for his own mother. He sees his own mother watching her baby boy be crucified. And and from the cross, he begins to to talk to her and another one of his disciples to make sure his own mother was going to be cared for after he was gone. We We got to see a picture of the victory in Christ. That from the outside, as Christ is hanging on the cross, by all all accounts, from the outside looking in, it looks as though he's been defeated. Though evil has won, 
though his mission has failed. But even from the cross, Jesus cries out in victory. We got to see a picture of the life that Jesus offers, that he gave his life so that we could find true life. Last week, we looked at a very realistic, historical, sociological, medical uh, view of what actually took place in a crucifixion what it was that Jesus experienced and got a better understanding of what he went through for you and I. And so now I want us to look at the seventh statement that Jesus makes from the cross in John chapter 19, starting in verse 30. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open there. But we're going to put all these verses up on the screen to to make it a little easier this morning to find your place. So it says this in John chapter 19, verse 30. 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine. Now let me catch you up about what that's talking about. Just the few verses preceding that, we get this picture of Jesus and his humanity and, and the fact that he was suffering like you and I suffer in this life and, and even speaks to his own needs and desires and thirst from the cross. And so some soldiers who were standing at the foot of the cross offer Jesus the sour wine, or depending on what translation you have in your Bible, um, maybe it says vinegar. It's the same thing. If you, if you ever use cooking wine and you let it sit on the shelf beyond its expiration date, you know how, how cooking wine can turn to vinegar. If you smelled it or if you accidentally cooked with it, you learned the hard way. And so what, what this was is it was sour wine. It was like vinegar mixed with water. This was kind of the lowest drink um, this was for peasants, this was for the poor and slaves, and, and occasionally even for very low-ranking soldiers. And so there was a soldier assigned to each person on a cross, and so there they would have had this vinegar mixed with water as an available drink, and so they give some to Jesus as he's hanging there on the cross. And so when Jesus had received the, the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. His final words as as he's preparing that final breath. And he bows his head and he gives up his spirit and and then Jesus is dead. It is finished. Um, This is one of my all-time favorite verses in all the Bible. And it's because of this phrase right here, but not just because of this phrase in English. Um, But the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And while we have three words here, it is finished. In the Greek, it's just one word. And it's a word that's pr- pronounced tetelestai. And it's such a powerful, powerful word that I think it's easy for us to miss the significance of what Jesus says here in his final breath. Tetelestai is, is a special form of a word. Um, now, you and I, I don't know how familiar you are with Greek grammar. I mean, when we were all in eighth grade, we were familiar with it, but we've, most of us have forgotten it um, on purpose. And, um, and so we have different ways to change verbs. From a past tense, we add ed, right? Um, if we want to make it a future tense verb, we add the helping word will. Um, and so that makes it past tense or present tense or future tense, right? You understand that. That's how we do it in English. Um, in the Greek, they would just change the actual form of the word, kind of like we do with ed. They would change the form. And there's something that the Greek has that you and I don't have in English, and it's called the perfect tense. And the perfect tense uh, is a completed action that has ongoing results, Uh, It's used so rarely in the Greek that it's almost as if the Greek author had written these, if John had written these 
in red ink so they would just pop off the page so that the Greek reader could never ignore what he had just said, that, that this is a completed action that's going to have long-lasting and ongoing effects. And, and, and let me tell you a little bit more about this word, tetelestai. This is actually an accounting term. This is an accounting term that um, in, in the ancient Greek, when, when, you would, uh, when you would take out a loan or you would purchase something, but you didn't have enough money, um, then you would be on a payment plan exactly like we are today. And you would continually make payments. And when you made your final payment and everything had been paid up and your balance was paid in full, the, the individual who had given you the loan or who had uh, given you the product that you owed money to would write tetelestai. It literally means paid in full. And from the cross in his final breath, Jesus yells out in victory, paid in full. Something that has been completed but will have long-lasting, ongoing effects for the rest of human history. So what is it that he paid in full? Isaiah 53, verse 5, says this. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus on the cross paid in full what you and I could never pay. That you and I have a debt because of our sin or, or some of these fancy words like transgressions and iniquities bring about a separation between us and God. It's a gap. It's a debt that's so large that we can't ever pay it. But on the cross, Jesus paid it in full for you and I. But notice, we'll go back to John 19 quickly. Notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. And the reason you and I are here today is because Jesus wasn't finished. The reason that we celebrate Easter is because Jesus wasn't finished. And three days later, after Jesus said these words and took his final breath, in Luke chapter 24, it says this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went, this is they, talking about some of his disciples and family members and close friends, went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. This is a, uh, a part of the burial ritual, um, as, as we can understand their methods were slightly different than ours are today. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. You and I are here today because Jesus wasn't finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. It is paid in full. Your debt has been paid. I've made the final payment that you could never pay on your own. And so Jesus has risen from the dead. And, and after this, Jesus spends 40 days uh, with some of his, with his disciples, with many of his followers, with many of his family members and friends, encouraging them and coaching them on what to do next, what's coming in life. And if we go just a little bit farther down in Luke chapter 24, Jesus says this in verse 44, Then he, talking about Jesus, said to them, talking about all of these followers and family members and friends of his, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's a fancy way of talking about the Old Testament. So we're talking about every part of the Bible that was written before Jesus came to the earth. Uh, and the prophet and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is from that's thus it is written, excuse me, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, which is where they're stationed right here as Jesus is speaking. And you are witnesses of these things. And Jesus, in part of his encouragement and coaching of these individuals, um, reminds them that it was always to be this way. That even hundreds and in some instances thousands of years before Christ stepped foot on, on the earth for the first time, it had been foretold, it had been prophesied that one day the Christ, which uh, sometimes we think of Christ as maybe Jesus' last name, but, but Christ is actually a title. It, it means the anointed one. That the Christ, the anointed one, the one God had prepared from before time began, that he would come, and after dying, he would raise again three days later. And then Jesus connects for them what this means for their lives, what this, what the, how this should impact them personally. He says, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That it was no longer just supposed to be concentrated in Jerusalem. That what had taken place wasn't, wasn't just for those who knew Jesus or saw Jesus or saw him or experienced him as, as resurrected, but that it was for all nations, for all people, for those who would understand what he's done and accept this debt that he paid in full for each of us. There was one man in particular that took this that this encouragement and this coaching and this commandment to heart, maybe more than anyone else in the last 2,000 years of history have done. And it was a man whose birth name was Saul. And Saul had a life mission to destroy Christians and to destroy the Christian church. That was his one goal in life. And everywhere he went, he did whatever it, he could and whatever it took to either kill or arrest and imprison every Christian he could find until one day. And one day, he met Jesus. He met the resurrected Jesus. The one he was trying to destroy, and the one he was trying to, who he was trying to destroy his reputation and movement. And, and Saul met Jesus. And from that point on, his life was so radically transformed that he went from such a great zealot of destroying Christians in the church to being probably history's greatest builder of the church and greatest missionary that, that the last 2,000 years have seen. His life was so radically changed that Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new name. Instead of Saul, you'll now be known as Paul to represent this new person that I've created in you. And Paul goes throughout the entire Roman Empire building and starting up churches. And he starts one church in an ancient city and, and what was originally established in the Greek Empire called Corinth. And here in this ancient city, Corinth, um, Paul goes and he starts and he builds up a church. And in the Bible, in the New Testament, 
we have two different letters that Paul wrote after he left this church and went to a new city to start more churches. He wrote some letters back to this church. Um, and he did this frequently to encourage and to equip, um, to help these Christians in their journey as they're trying to make sense of what it is that Jesus and his teachings and his death and his resurrection mean for their daily lives. And as we get a picture and a reflection of what, how Paul coached them and taught them, we can allow it to teach us and encourage us because we're in the same, the same battle that those same Christians were in the first century in some of these ancient cities, dealing with many of the same issues, surprisingly. And so in 1 Corinthians, so Paul's first letter to this church, in, verse, in chapter 15, starting in verse 3, we get this. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so Paul is saying, listen, I received a message from the risen Christ, and I'm going to deliver it to you just like we read in Luke 24, that he commanded us that all of the nations should be able to hear about this good news, that repentance and forgiveness should be made available to all. So because I received it from the risen Christ, I'm delivering it to you now. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and that's, a, that's another way of, of naming Peter, one of the disciples. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's almost as if he's challenging his readers to investigate. He says, and then Jesus appeared to more than 500, and most of them are still alive if you want to go talk to him about it. We saw him crucified, and now there's a great group of witnesses who saw him resurrected. Though some have fallen asleep, that's a very politically correct way of saying died. And then verse 7, then he appeared to James, that's actually the half-brother of Jesus, and then to all the apostles. Jesus has risen, and the message from very early began to spread, not wasn't centrally located in Jerusalem and, and places like Galilee where Jesus grew up. But now it's spreading throughout, at this time, the Roman Empire, the known world at the time. And this paid in full balance, this, this completed action that has these lasting and ongoing effects, carries into the 21st century for you and I. And that's why we're sitting in chairs right here this morning. And why my wife and I moved to Murphy Creek two and a half years ago to start this church to continue the, the action of spreading the news and the message that repentance and forgiveness is made available by the death and resurrection of Christ. And in chapter 15, Paul's going to go on. He's going to talk more about the resurrection, specifically why it matters. And starting in verse 12, he says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If it's not possible, if, if there's no possibility for you and I or for anyone to have life after death, then how, how could it be that Christ was raised from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If what we're celebrating here, if the reason why you and I are all here this morning, if it's not true, then all of this is a grand waste of time. Then everything that I've taught and proclaim and have built my life on is stupid and a waste of time. 
Everything that you claim to believe, the hope that you have, the power that's made available to you, that you desperately want to see move in your life and do something special in you and in your family and in this community, all of it is pointless if Christ hasn't raised from the dead. If, if the resurrection isn't true, then none of it is. The resurrection is central to everything that we believe and everything that we claim to be. So why is that? Why would Paul say something like that? Well, Paul wrote another letter to another church in the city of Rome. And in that letter, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says, Paul says this, and he, talking about Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That justification is a, is a legal term that, that means to be made right, to be in good, proper, innocent standing. And so what Paul says is that Jesus died for our sins to pay the debt that you and I couldn't pay. And it was all it was all made right. It was all verified. And our standing with God has been made right. This justification. Because he was raised. Jesus was raised to life. To show that he had the authority. And the power. To pronounce forgiveness. Otherwise Jesus is nothing more than a martyr. Maybe a good example to look to. But not a God worth following. Maybe, maybe sending a good, wholesome message, but not a God worth worshiping. If the resurrection isn't true, then Jesus is just a martyr. And Paul says he died and paid the debt for our sins on that cross. And when he rose to life, he proved that he had the authority to do it. And that he had the power to do it. The resurrection is central to everything we believe and everything we claim to be. If the resurrection didn't happen, then nothing matters. Then none of it is true. The resurrection is central. You and I are here today to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. That on the cross, He paid our balance in full. And, be, and what happened three days later gives us the hope and the confidence that he has the authority and the power to do it. And because Christ raised from the dead, we know that life after death is possible. And because we know life after death is possible, you and I can have hope. That there's hope in this life. And that there's power in this life. Jesus has changed everything for you and I. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for our time together this morning for who you are and for what you've done in our lives. I thank you for what today celebrates. That it celebrates victory. The victory that you won over sin and death. That we can have hope and that there is real, true power made available to you, to all of us for the forgiveness of sins, and for life. I want you to keep your eyes closed for just a moment with me, if you will.
we read from that letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church. And he wrote something else to them as well. And he was teaching them and talking to them about what it means to be made right with God, that justification term. He was also talking about what it means to, uh, to be forgiven of sins, how that works. And he says this in that same letter in chapter 10, verse 9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, a good philosopher, a good example. It's not even enough to just believe He died on the cross. We find hope and forgiveness and power and life because of His resurrection. Because the resurrection proved who he, that He was who He had always said He was. And that He had the authority and power to declare forgiveness, to make us right with God, to promise us life after death. Belief and trust in the resurrection is essential to the life and the faith of a Christian. Paul says that if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just your Savior, not just somebody who gets you out of trouble, but a Lord worthy of being followed, worthy of being worshipped, your master, your coach, someone you would give your whole life to, if you'll confess Him to be that for you, and then if you'll believe in your heart that He raised, He was raised from the dead, then you'll be saved. All these things we've talked about, the forgiveness, the life, the hope, the power, all of those things are made available to you. Jesus, thank you for our time together this morning. I imagine, God, that there are some in here who've never come to that place of believing in the resurrection. Maybe only seeing it as a metaphorical um, teaching about about your enduring influence, but, but God, I, I realize that there's nothing I can say to convince. There's no amount of words that'll make that truth ring. God, I ask that you would do now in this moment, in this place, what only you have the power to do, and that's to change a heart. That everyone in this room would be at the place of belief in the resurrection. That we would, we would believe in it so much that we would entrust our lives to that truth. That it would mean everything. That it would define who we are. That it would define our future. Jesus, thank you for paying our debt in full. A debt that we could never pay. Would you continue to move in this place? Would you continue to teach and to challenge and to encourage each of us this morning? Lord, we love you and pray these things in your name.